Welcome to the Willow Valley Podcasting Channel, where exciting podcasts are created by Willow Valley residents, for Willow Valley residents, and about Willow Valley residents. Greetings, everyone. My name is Dale Johnson, and I want to welcome everyone to the Willow Valley Podcast Channel and our podcast, Life Under the Willow Tree. Our podcast today is a little different than normal. First of all, we have a live audience here today so people can see how our podcast is produced. I look out there and there must be at least six or seven hundred people out there. (laughs) So, Not quite, but we have a nice little crowd here. Also, we will give the opportunity at the end for people uh, in our audience to ask a question of our guest. We have so many retired professionals living here at Willow Valley, and often we like to bring them in and produce a podcast that's a little more educational. So today we've brought in a retired professor of animal science. Our guest is Dr. Larry Katz, a very new resident at Spring Run. Dr. Katz received his bachelor's and master's degree from Cornell University and his doctorate from the University of California at Davis. He joined Rutgers University in 1989 and chaired the Department of Animal Sciences from 2001 to 2008. And his scholarly expertise is in behavior endocrinology, reproductive biology, and the behavior of domestic animals. A saying at Willow Valley is everyone sort of leaves their egos at the door. So I'm going to call Dr. Katz, but by what all his new friends call him here at Willow Valley, Larry, if that's okay. I hope so. (laughs) Okay, so thanks for being here on the podcast today, Larry. My pleasure. How long have you been living at Willow Valley and where, where did you move from? We often like to find out a little bit about folks. We've been here for three months now, and we moved from a town called Ringo's in New Jersey. About an hour and a half or so, two hours from here. Okay. Now, if you've not met Larry and his wife, B, I really encourage you to try to get to know them. They are one of those couples that moves in. They're so friendly, and they make an immediate impact when they arrive. And try to spot them out dancing. They are two of the best dancers in Willow Valley. Just marvelous. Now, Larry, you already have some plans to do some presentations with the pet club and also through our renaissance uh, series so you wanted to step away from uh, doing things about dogs and cats and get into something a little different today so today's our topic will be the reasons for the overpopulation of deer the problems that are associated with that and possible solutions so why don't you just give us a little overview of the whole situation i'm happy to thanks You know, a number of years ago, I was asked what we might do to address some of the deer problems in New Jersey. And, you know, it struck me that I I better study up on this topic because I really hadn't known much about it prior to that point. So before we get into the heart of the matter, I I want to preface my comments by saying um, I love the deer. And so even though many of my recommendations might suggest killing a lot of deer, Uh, I don't blame the deer for any of the problems we have because of of their overpopulation. I blame our poor management and our poor design of of suburban developments. That's created an environment that allowed their populations to really burgeon. Deer are an extremely important animal within our environment. Uh, They provide a number of natural services in terms of trimming uh, vegetation and providing some open space for new forage to take place. They, they serve an important function in 
allowing water to percolate into the into the soil because their hooves break up the crust of the topsoil. So a very important animal for, uh, in our environment. But because we've changed the environment so much over over the last several decades, we've created a habitat that supports many, many more deer than there ever were in the past. At one time, the number of deer was probably estimated to be about five to 10 animals per square mile. We have areas in suburban Pennsylvania, outside of Philadelphia, and outside of various cities in New Jersey where there are close to 200 deer per square mile. My backyard, for example, before we moved here, typically would have 20 to 30 deer enjoying my lawn. <laughs> so we had to figure out what to do about these deer populations given the constraints associated with how close they are to housing. It's very difficult to have hunting in areas where children might be playing in the backyard. And also sharing of spaces, for example, in, in some of our parks where the impact of the deer is quite, quite dramatic. We have people visiting the park and enjoying their outdoor time and having hunting taking place in some of those areas can be very difficult. So we have this combination of, of effects of increasing their habitat and decreasing their death loss creating this overabundance as as we refer to it. Now, I want to start and take more of a historical perspective on the issue. When the settlers first arrived, what was the situation with the deer then? So the settlers arrived um, and the Native Americans uh, depended very heavily on, on white-tailed deer uh, for food. Uh, they hunted them and uh, they followed them along their various paths to uh, take advantage of that resource. Uh, but they didn't do a lot of the the Native Americans, that is, didn't do a lot of changing of the of the environment. They didn't cut down large swaths of forest, and so the, the land only supported a certain number of deer, and and the number of deer that the Indians harvested didn't really have much of an impact on on the growth and maintenance of the population. When the settlers arrived on this continent, they took a very different approach to how they utilized the resources. Over-exploitation follows uh, white man, if you will, um, wherever we go. And so by cutting down the forests uh, to build their settlements, to harvest all of the timber, what they did was create more edge. If you think about, say, a large forest, within the forest it's rather dark in the center, you have all this vegetation, but at the edges, uh, you have shrubs and, and other vegetation that, that receive light, and it's quite abundant at that edge. But now if you come in and you chop that big forest up into a bunch of little parcels, think about how much more edge you're creating. And the deer are what are known as an edge species. They thrive. They consume the, the brush and other material that is in that edge. So the population really started to grow. Also being quite exploitive, the settlers harvested a lot of deer. So they took a very different approach so, on the hunting yeah, of the deer. Yeah, a little less yeah. sustainable than, mm -hmm, than mm -hmm. the Native American. And so at one point, uh, leading up to about the turn of the, from the 18th into the 19th century, uh, the deer in parts of New Jersey, a little bit of Eastern Pennsylvania, were nearly driven to extinction. And to deal with that, laws were put in place. The first one known as the Buck Law restricted the number of deer that hunters could take. And the goal there was to allow the populations to start to rebound. While that restriction on hunting was taking place, continued fragmentation of the environment, building of development, uh, you know, suburbia and so forth, created more edge. And so you had this combination of a decrease in death rate because there were areas where there wasn't going to be hunting close to houses. 
an increase in nutrition. And so our, the deer went from having, maybe producing their first fawn in their second year of life, and maybe having only one fawn per year, to young fawns getting pregnant in their first breeding season, their first year of life, having one fawn that first year, and thereafter having twins or triplets. So the birth rate just skyrocketed while the fragmentation continued. And so we just built this environment that I would sometimes affectionately refer to or humorously refer to as New Jersey and parts of Pennsylvania as being the Ben and Jerry's of, of deer habitat. It just was perfect for them. So what type of habitats are creating the most problems? I mean, you certainly have areas that are massive forest, and then you have these suburban areas with all the edge. Right, so which, right. which environments are the worst? Well, the problem areas in terms of uh, damage and impact of the deer on, on uh, human activities are the suburban areas because you have the combination of the increase in the edge uh, as well as the inability to get in there and hunt those populations. And so what would happen is that the deer populations grow and then the deer use those safe havens, if you <laughs> will, or refuges uh, to avoid to avoid the hunt, uh, hunting pressures. When you get out into more rural areas, open farmlands and so forth, hunting does a pretty good job of, of keeping the numbers in, keeping in balance. Equilibrium, yeah, yeah. Let's take a look at some of the problems that are associated with the overpopulation of deer. Let's start with uh, agricultural crops and damage that you would find. Boy, do we grow food that the deer love. And so um, some estimates just, in, I, you know, I know the New Jersey numbers better than I know the Pennsylvania numbers, but we've estimated pretty good estimates of damage of over $20 million a year in losses to, to New Jersey farmers. Uh, to put that in perspective, it's, it's for some farms, it represents anywhere between 10 and 20% of loss of their, of their income. And not only are they losing that crop, but they're making decisions about abandoning abandoning fields. They just can't grow anything there because of the deer. Or they're replacing a higher value product, let's say a soybean or some kind of herb that would reap a pretty good profit for them. And they're growing something like hay, which while the deer will eat the hay, the impact of the deer on, on the hay fields is not going to be as great. So their revenue per acre has dropped considerably. So that's pretty devastating in, on agriculture right there. And then, of course, we have the whole issue with people buying beautiful plants to, to, for their landscaping in their yard, and that's also very attractive to deer. Yeah. yeah and that's an interesting story when you speak to some of the um, nursery owners who said that, you know, when the deer numbers first started to go up, they loved it because the deer were eating the, the um, vegetation around people's homes. And so they were coming back to the stores and buying more vegetation. And it was a great little business for them. But that only goes so far because the land, you know, if, you, if you're having to replant every year these expensive shrubs, at some point you go, you know what, forget it. And so you're not going to be buying a high value shrub and you might put some something that the deer don't prefer. Oftentimes the choices were some of these non-native invasive species. And so the nursery operators indicated that uh, they've lost an awful lot of money and homeowners throwing up their arms over what to do. I couldn't grow anything around my house where we lived. It led to growth of some other um, industries like the deer repellents, which is um, uh, many of them are kind of like snake oil. You know, people will market these things and, and it might cause the deer to avoid it the first day or two, but one rainfall and then they'll, if they're hungry, they'll eat it. As I like to sometimes say, if they're hungry enough, they'll eat the tires off of your car. 
And then, of course, one of the problems that is very serious, but I think a lot of the public is not quite aware of, is the inability of forests to regenerate because of, of what deer are doing in the interior of the forest. Well, boy, is that a problem, especially here in Pennsylvania. So what the deer do, of course, is they forage on the young growing, rapidly growing shoots and shrubs and the young saplings. And so in order for a forest to continue to survive and to go through its natural succession, there needs to be a tree ready to replace the space when an older tree falls. And what we're seeing in our forests, because the deer are selectively browsing the native species, is that when an old tree dies, the only thing that fills that space where the light is invasive ground cover. We see ivies and, and other kinds of uh, brush that are just not going to allow for the replacement of the of those trees. Moreover, when you lose those native species, you lose the habitat for ground nesting birds and ground nesting mammals and all sorts of other pollinators for those populations to thrive. So the deer are sometimes called a keystone species. And what's meant by that is the more deer, the less of everything else. There was a really fascinating study in Pennsylvania a number of years ago where they they fenced off in old forested areas. They created a series of one mile square fenced areas and they controlled how many deer were in each of these areas by basically eliminating them all and then repopulating these, this space with uh, deer at about uh, five to 10 per square mile and then going up successively from there. And then over time, what they did is they came into those areas and they counted the number of sp plant species and bird species and, and flowers and so forth. And the, and the impact was really, really clear. As the deer numbers went up, everything else just plummeted, wow. plummeted to the ground. And then, of course, we have the whole issue of encounters between the deer and automobiles. Yeah. So the last numbers that I saw for New Jersey was was 20,000 deer car collisions. For Pennsylvania, it was 80,000 deer car collisions per year. Hard to get estimates on what that represents, but I know if my car uh, has to have a, a fender replaced, it's going to be thousands of dollars. It was difficult to really collect good data and uh, took a lot of pressure, and we had the New Jersey legislature finally pass a bill that required the insurance companies to actually record whether it was deer-related or what they called acts of God for these collisions. And, uh, and then we saw the uh, tens of millions of dollars of damage. And that's only from the accidents where there were claims. Many, many accidents uh, have no insurance claim at all because people don't want to deal with right. the impact on their insurance rates. And as I've said to a few people before, when we talk to the auto body shops and ask them what they think about the deer problem, they laugh and say, problem? <laughs> The deer are putting my children through college. Yeah, so. One thing I think about when I'm out driving is I'm, I'm very cognizant of the time of day that I'm driving. Uh, there are certain animals are nocturnal. They, they're mainly active at night. Other animals are diurnal. They're during the day. But deer are what's known as crepuscular. They are active early in the morning and in the evening. So when I'm out driving, those are the times I'm most cognizant about that. Also, my cat is crepuscular, which is why he wakes me up at six o'clock in the morning. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, so finally, let's let's bring up the whole issue of the spread of disease uh, due to deer. Well, let me just get back to the crepuscular nature of their activity real briefly, because it's an important uh, warning for all of you and, and, you and what you do by being especially careful of that time of day makes sense. But also let's bear in mind that there's two th couple things that happen at the same time. When the days are getting short, people tend to be driving to and from work 
at that dawn and dusk time. And during the fall, during that period, uh, during that period of time is also the, the rut, the breeding season. And so the bucks are chasing the does around. And so you have physical activity among the deer. At the same time, you have a lot of cars on the road when they're active. So it's just, it's juxtaposing to activities that, that lead to carnage. So follow up on the, the issue with the disease. And then, uh, you know, of course, We've all seen problems associated with Lyme disease. That's just, just one disease. It's, of course, it's not caused by the deer. The deer carry the black-legged tick that carries the spirochete that causes the disease. But the more deer you have, typically, the more t- ticks you have in your neighborhood. And Lyme disease is just one example of some of the diseases that can be spread by ticks. And there's quite a long, lengthy list of some of these conditions, babesiosis and ehrlichiosis and... Rocky Mountain spotted fever and various undulating fevers, so potentially causing a lot of problem. And high deer densities also lead to greater spread of diseases among the deer and between deer and livestock. So when populations are out of control, a lot of problems occur. So let's take a look at a couple of possible solutions to the problem, both of which have some controversy associated with them. But let, let's start with the whole issue of hunting. Okay. So um, hunting is an excellent method for controlling deer populations when it's managed properly. And that's an important proviso. To manage hunting properly, you have to convince hunters to take the doe. And for many years, hunters grew up with this attitude of we need to grow the populations and so they didn't want to take a doe or they would they would take a very small number of does. Now, why is it important to take does? There are the individuals that bear young. Well, yes, you do have to have a male pair up with a female to get young eventually. But these are not a monogamous species. In other words, you don't have one male with one female. These are promiscuous uh, breeding species. One male will get every female in the community pregnant. You don't need a lot of males for all the females to bear young. So by hunting males, you're not going to have an impact on the population at all. But by reducing females, when you take her out, you take her out and you take the two twins that she's going to have uh, in that spring and in, and in subsequent years. So hunting is very effective when it's when it's well managed. But we discussed earlier about this um, fragmentation in the, of the environment and housing development and people living close to the space where there's lots of deer. Hunting there, it's difficult. It's very difficult, if not illegal, given the the require the distance requirements from from uh, residents uh, for hunters. So. What had happened was that led to some people saying, well, what are some of the alternative methods? And this is when I first got called in to address, what about birth control in in the deer? And you can well imagine that uh, there were cartoons draw, drawn of me putting condoms on bucks and things of that nature, which was, you know, kind of humorous. A lot of approaches to the way you might use reproduction for animals, and some are very, very effective. As you, as you can well imagine, human reproduction control was, was based on research that was done with animals. But a lot of that uses, for example, steroid hormones that are orally active, the birth control pill, for example. It works in deer, no problem there. Uh, except, of course, any other animal that comes along and eats that animal is going to also be ingesting that steroid hormone. And so that's not a good thing, contaminating food chains. Plus, how are you going to get the hormone to the animal every day? I mean, that's just ridiculous. So then people looked at uh, other approaches, surgical approaches, huh. uh, you know, the cost of doing, uh, mm. let's say, a tubal ligation or uh, on females would be prohibitive. Plus, the anesthetic you would have to use has not been approved for use in 
in deer. So now you have to apply for an investigation, uh, uh, investigation permit, and that, that's not a practical way to deal with populations. So then people started to look at what was happening in horse, wild horse populations. And in wild horse populations, there was an investigator who developed a method known as immunocontraception. And it was a clever idea. Uh, it is a clever idea. And the basis behind this is to create a vaccine that causes a female essentially to reject her own eggs. And so every time she ovulates, her antibodies surround that egg and that egg can't be fertilized. And when they did this work in horses, what it would require, as you can remember from your vaccination exposures, the animal has to be treated once. And after a period of time, it has to get a boost for the antibody titers to be high enough to have an impact. Well, when they were dealing with horse populations, the number of animals and the social organization of the horse is very different than it mm -hmm. is in the deer. And so it just wasn't making a whole lot of sense. How are you going to treat a sufficient number of deer to bring about an imp impact on population? And it turns out from many years of research now that we've clearly shown that even if you could reach 70% of the females in a population it would take between seven and eight years from the time you start the program before you even begin to see a decline in the population because they're a long-lived animal. Now, if you're a farmer who's losing 20% of your income a year, and I come and tell you that, um, well, in about seven years, we, you might start to see some improvement. You can imagine uh, the attitude I'd get be thrown off of his farm pretty quickly. So, so that's a tough one. So yeah, that's a really that's tough, tough one. one. Yeah, and then yeah. even where some folks in Canada had developed a one-shot immunocontraceptive that, that seemed like it was going to give multi-year effect, the Food and Drug Administration said, okay, now you have to prove through good laboratory practices that you can produce something that's safe and effective. And to do that, they had to heat treat the material because of the nature of some of the materials in the vaccine. And as soon as they did that, it inactivated it and it became completely ineffective as a, as a treatment. So moreover, even some of the activists who said, well, we could be doing this in limited populations anyway, they did their own, the Humane Society in the United States did their own research and they estimated, hold your seats, that this would cost $1,000 in labor and materials per deer. $1,000 per deer. People would call me up on the phone and ask about that. We were going through a period of time when communities were voting down an increase of like 0.01% on the school tax to educate their own children. And I'm saying, wait a minute, you're not going to pay another penny on the thousand to educate your children? And you think people are going to pay for the deer to contracept the deer? Yeah. No, it's not going to work. <laughs> well, very good. As I mentioned earlier, we have a live audience here today, and we've provided an opportunity for them to submit some questions. So, Larry, I'm going to throw a few questions out to you. So do spring and fall time changes affect the deer population? You know, it's an interesting one. I think not a whole lot, but getting back to the issue of uh, the commute hours, it may actually be causing a problem with shifting the driving time to the time when the deer are more active. Whether one hour is enough to really make an impact, um, I, don't, I don't have the answer to that, but worth pursuing. The problem, the difficulty about studying that is that, you know, you have the same time that the time change is happening, you've also got the breeding season coming in and the activity level of both the people and the deer changing too. Now, are there any natural controls of the deer population, say, for example, natural predators or disease? There are a number of diseases that are killing some deer. I don't think they're, one, killing enough to impact the growth of the herd. Two, nor is that a way that we would want to 
manage herds through through disease, chronic wasting disease and malignant catarrhal fever and a few others that are pretty horrific to see the deer suffer from. In terms of natural predators, yes, bears will eat some deer and coyotes will take some, especially the uh, the fawns. Some of the predatory birds will uh, will take some fawns also. It's a um, pretty nasty one to see the way they blind the animal first and then they, and then they begin consuming them. So it's uh, there are natural predators. The estimates are that natural predators might account for controlling about five deer per square mile. So when you have 100 deer per square mile and only five are being taken by natural predation. It's not much. It's not much at all. Mm -hmm. Now, you say there are more edge areas for the deer, but I've heard that many deer are actually starving. What's the explanation for that? Yeah, so there was a time when there was more starvation in deer, particularly in the winter. Not as much as you might think. So some of the older um, deer... As their teeth wear down, they have difficulty getting enough nutrition to get them through a severe winter. When winters were more severe, there was probably more death loss uh, during that time of year. But deer interesting adaptation to this change in season. They eat less during the winter time. They actually slow their metabolism down and don't consume as much. So I don't think we see very much starvation in the deer. Uh, perhaps in some more wide open extensive areas where there's not as much natural vegetation as there might be in in suburbia um, but it's it's not really accounting for much in the way of population control this wasting disease is that making an impact on the uh, white-tailed deer population um, as far as we can tell no it tends to occur in small pockets in areas that will reduce the numbers somewhat fortunately it's not a real widespread problem and as i say it's a nasty way for the deer to go, not one I would want to see. Now, is this image of the deer as Bambi, mm-hmm. is that creating obstacles to more sensible uh, hunting practices? I blame all of that on Walt Disney, yes. Um, people have this tendency to, uh, you know, personify the deer as, you know, little little people running out there, or they say that we moved into their environment, and, you know, how dare we do these things? Well, no, we created their environment, which allowed their numbers to to increase. But yeah, so the sort of, as people become more and more distant from living within or among nature, in the, in the nature natural they kind of lose, yeah. lose their perspective on, on controls. And so that's the policy issues dealing, especially urban, I call them animal rights activists, because those are a lot of the folks that I had to deal with. They just don't really have a good grasp on on what it's like to be out in the wild, and so they're trying to impose their particular philosophy mm-hmm. on on other communities. And uh, oftentimes, I ref- refer to some of these activists as carpetbaggers moving from one community to another to sort of spread a series of uh, misinformation about deer populations, about methods that can work. So that posed a real problem. So yeah, I, I do call it the Bambi. syndrome there. So this was fascinating. um, And everyone should keep their eye out for some of your presentations with the Pet Club and also Mm -hmm. through the Renaissance uh, magazine. So Dr. Katz, I want to thank you for being here today. It was a pleasure to have you. It was my pleasure indeed. Thank you, Dale. Thank you, Ellen. And thank you, audience. Thanks for listening, and be sure to listen again next week and every week when we'll have another exciting guest. It's easy to share this podcast with friends and neighbors, and we want you to feel free to do that. It's a great way of giving perspective of life here under Willow Valley to your kids, to neighbors, 
to new people that may be thinking about coming here, and it's easy to do. Simply direct them to www.lifeundertheWillowTree.org. And thanks again for listening.